0: This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Belle Shakespeare. Belle Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present.
1: She looks upon his lips, and they are pale. She takes him by the hand, and that is cold. She whispers in his ears a heavy tale, as if they heard the woeful words she told. She lifts the coffer-lids that close his eyes, where, lo, two lamps burnt out in darkness lies. Since thou art dead, quoth she, I prophesy sorrow on love hereafter shall attend. It shall be waited on with jealousy, find sweet beginning but unsavoury end. Ne'er settled equally but high or low, that all love's pleasure shall not match his woe. It shall be fickle, false, and full of fraud, bud and be blasted in a breathing while, the bottom poisoned, the top strawed with sweets that shall the truest sight beguile. The strongest body shall it make most weak, strike the wise dumb and teach the fool to speak. It shall suspect where is no cause to fear, it shall not fear where it should most mistrust. It shall be merciful and too severe, and most deceiving when it seems most just. Perverse it shall be where it shows most toward, put fear to valour, courage to the coward. It shall be cause of war and dire events, and set dissension twixt son and sire, subject and servile to all discontents as dry combustious matter is to fire. Sith in his prime death doth my love destroy, they that love best their loves shall not enjoy.
0: Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was an excerpt from Shakespeare's narrative poem, Venus and Adonis, read by our guest this week. She is an award-winning designer, artist and creative producer with extensive experience in theatre, dance, opera, contemporary performance and the many different forms of installation art. She's designed numerous productions for Malthouse Theatre, Legs on the Wall, Circus Oz, Sydney Chamber Opera and Force Majeure to name a few. For Belle Shakespeare, her credits include Venus and Adonis, Taming of the Shrew, Twelfth Night, Julius Caesar, the Miser, and most recently, Hamlet. She was curator of the Australian exhibition for the most recent Prague quadrennial of performance, space, and design. It is my pleasure to welcome Anna Tregloan. Anna, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you, James. So good to have you here, Anna. Now, this is the first time we've had one of Shakespeare's poems on our program and the first time we've had someone who doesn't have a background in performance. So I'm very excited. A lot of new firsts here today. So, Anna, please tell us, what is this poem all about, Venus and Adonis?
1: Um, Well, Venus and Adonis, it is the story, it's kind of the story of Venus, um, who the goddess of love, of course, um, who spies Adonis, who is a beauteous young man right. mm. um, with absolutely no interest in love, much more interest in hunting <laughs> Hunting sure, <yeah. laughs> is really his, mm. his go-to. Um, however, Venus becomes besotted with him. He says no, tries to get away. Um, eventually, um, after she falsifies a feint, he succumbs a little but still insists on going hunting the next morning. She has a vision of him being killed by mm. a boar, which mm. is the sport, the hunting sport of the day. And he he sort of leaves at dawn and she goes rushing after him, concerned about this vision. At first thinks that um, he has been killed already and you know, berates death and tries to turn it around. Mm. And then thinks that he is still alive um, until she stumbles upon him and finds that he's indeed dead. Mm-hmm. And then as a result of that, she then... Curses love for yeah. all mortals here on in. Um, so, if she so, can't have it, no one can. <laughs>
0: no one can. So then that's the part of the poem that you just read was the the curse on Love. Uh, what do you make of this passage? It seems like um, it's like an origin story of why love stinks, right?
1: It's, yeah, it's like, absolutely, and um, it's interesting to think about it in the uh, you know the endless travails of lovers within Shakespeare as well. Mm, it's like um, he was kind of cursing his own characters to an extent. But it, it is all of the problematic sides of love where it's not, yeah, it's not sort of easy and smooth sailing. It it tricks you and, um, and leads you astray. Um, I also find it really appealing because she is the goddess of love and what is it to curse the thing that you are the commander of yes, is right. quite a, you know, weird twisted thing Mm. to do but you know such is her passions but I kind of love her as a character that she has the power to do that and the power of herself to do that
0: yeah I love that and you know Shakespeare then obviously spends the rest of his career exploring why love is is so cursed and 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 all the different ways Uh, but tell me about this poem and when Shakespeare wrote it because importantly it was written during a plague lockdown right
1: in, apparently so, yes. Mm. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Which has, of course, very interesting parallels to where we are at the moment. But um, yeah. yeah, it's um, interesting that like many artists in the last year or so, mm. he kind of turned his talents to something else yes. while the theatres were closed and the plays could not go on. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. I don't know the historical facts, I assume it was a bit like now when you didn't really know when they'd open again. So you had to, you know, learn some new skill, you know, (laughs) reuse your skills in another way. Oh, absolutely. Um, But it's, uh, yeah, but he he obviously did a very good job of it. It's been a hugely popular um, piece of writing. Yeah, it um, has. And even in his
0: own lifetime, apparently it was reprinted like dozens of times and, and, and people absolutely loved it. So, you know, he... Well, he could do a few things, Um, old Shakespeare. He could do a few things. You know, I'd love to ask you as well, segueing into you as an artist in 2020 and how it was for you, because I know that you travel a lot. You know, you were just in in Prague in 2019. You were in Jakarta uh, doing a project there, and then all of a sudden everything shuts down. What was that like for you, Anna?
1: Oh, I think for everyone and particularly freelance artists because everyone was sort of in the same situation but actually off by yourself you know I was sitting in a studio by myself where I got emails endless emails of um productions being cancelled um it was devastating I don't think there's another word for it like it felt like losing a career but there was Mm. no pathway forward there was no other job you could go out and get they just didn't exist so um I think um Communally, there was a huge grieving, but lots of people got together, and um, you know, there was soon after all of the shows got cancelled. I had you know five shows cancelled in a week. Um, uh, There was the Zoom calls. Commenced And kind of, you know, strong communities grew yes. out of it as well That's where people right. compared experiences and built new connections, actually. That's um, right. And I know that was happening all over the place, lots of sort of independent art, little Zoom groups mm-hmm. all over the country, yep. um, many of them very regular.
0: And then you obviously are a very collaborative person as an artist. You like to collaborate. You like to have people in the room with you all of a sudden. and But, you know, you have your own studio there as well where you work solo, but then you like to collaborate did you get a lot of work done? Did you come up with new ideas? Did you did you design new things that you thought you wouldn't during that time?
1: Um, I did. I, <laughs> I did a lot of sort of admin and archiving okay. work, which okay. had been yep. sitting there yep. for years yes, untouched, mm-hmm. um, which was good. That had you know sort through old show photos it had been on my to do list for mm. a couple of years. I reckon. Right. I went. It was interesting. I went back to a few practices that I'd kind of lost touch with mm-hmm. a bit, like like this sort of simple act of drawing for myself rather yes. than for a production or for a um, you know for it to go on and become something else, actually just drawing and sort of tried to make a practice of doing that mm-hmm. as a daily daily practice, which I've tried to continue afterwards as well. I also kind of somewhat ironically, um, in in round about April last year had been my time to develop a work which is called The Impossible Project. Oh yeah, I Which had as part of the Prague Quadranial was mm. its first iteration, um which collects kind of creative works that became impossible, that mm. started well but became were disrailed for whatever reason. Yes. was the so the original project, you know, a lot of it was about the question of what is possible and what's impossible. Mm. Um and then COVID hit and suddenly, absolutely everything was impossible. Mm. So for a um, for a little while, I just didn't quite know what to do because it felt didn't. It was a different project to what I'd started on, um, and it felt a little bit like so many people were still in shock and mourning. It was yeah. hard to know how to move forward. But after a while, I decided that it was actually it was really important that someone made a record of all of the works or as many as you possibly could mm. make a record record of the works cancelled or postponed or derailed due to COVID. Yeah. It was, of course, itself an impossible task. Yes. I kept it yes. just within Australia, and you know mm. there's there was about 160 projects we looked into, mm. um, 50 of which we looked at in detail, and and you would have just scratched the surface, yep. really. But it was it was really well received in the end. It kind of built a. Um, website for it and another sort of new learning, I guess, which there was time for last year, sort of took on the challenge because at the beginning of COVID I was like, no, I work in 3D. That's Mm. what I've made my thing is Mm. that it's, you know, whether it's on stage or in a gallery or museum, it's about three-dimensional experience. I'm not going onto screens, (laughs) of course, in the end. Um, I did take on the challenge of building a website that was not just a documentary, that it's actually a sort of creative act right. um, in itself mm-hmm. um, and it was great it sort of led me to have you know, I had detailed conversations with many of the artists commissioned some of the artists to attempt impossible tasks themselves yes. and yep. mm-hmm. and so there was really great kind of more building of connections between things learnt.
0: Now you yourself Anna have engaged in. I'm sure you would say more than a couple impossible projects yourself. Uh, but the one I want to ask you about is the Richard the Third project that you did with Bell Shakespeare as part of uh, what was then called the Mind's Eye uh, initiative, which was about uh, new work that intersects with Shakespeare. And this was called, correct me if I'm wrong, Richard Loves Richard. Is that right? Which is a quote from which is a quote from the play. You started it in 2009. the 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 wheels fell off why why was that impossible
1: Mm. i actually started in 2009 then reapproached it i think in about 2011 with a completely different take right um it was an exploration of richard iii and i was um, most interested in the character's sense of himself Mm. um, and that idea that richard loves richard and that a lot of the play is kind of a conversation with himself that grew particularly into the second iteration, um, thinking about, you know, it's a much performed play. Richard Mm -hmm. III was a real man. Historically, he is seen to be not as much of a villain as he's portrayed in the play. He's often seen as, you know, a little bit snide, maybe a bad politician, Didn't, (laughs) didn't work the court system well, seems to be the general thing. So what that is for the you know the ghost or the 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 real character the real person Richard the Third hearing his story retold mm, ad mm. infinitum as a fiction and yes. that his character is now seen in those terms and mm. um, sort of what that conversation would be. So the first version of it was with two amazing actors Dan Spielman and Paul Lum, who's a Melbourne based actor, in. An old warehouse out in Lilyfield, yep. which was actually condemned at the time. It was wow. it was about to be completely de- demolished. Okay. I think <laughs> as we were working, they <laughs> started at one end of it. Okay. Um, it was it was really an experiment, like mm. it was almost you know an experiment bound to fail because yes. it really was pushing the boundaries. Mm-hmm. So in the warehouse out of Lilyfield, um, Lily the two actors, both playing Richard, Cage, um, Nigel Poulton, who works with the company a lot, came mm. and. Mm. Um, sort of trained the guys in cage fighting <laughs> cage wow, fighting yes. there was mm-hmm. you know straw on the floor we got in a vicious police attack dog
0: <laughs> a, re- a real dog a yeah. real dog wow
1: called tiger from memory yeah and it was it, it was kind of a conversation where it was a fight between richard and himself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that version the second version was entirely different and i think this kind of Underlines what an experiment it was. Mm. In that it was Luke Mullins, another amazing actor. Um, he performed all of the characters, yes. the entire text of right. <laughs> Richard wow. III, mm. um, uh, lying uh, sort of a, in a in a abstract grave of sorts. Meanwhile, this is um, very much an installation piece. The audience came and went. Um, sort of, I sort of pulled out. There was a, a mock trial. Um, in the UK in the late 70s, hmm. I think, where he, he, it was found that there was not enough evidence for him to be convicted. Sure, yeah. Um, so that, I re-edited that and that was in the room. Yeah. There were worms, Mike to Max Leandford miked would up some worms <laughs> that were eating him. <laughs> um, uh, and and there was some sort of text, there other things in the room as hmm. well. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of genuinely experimental um, and about kind of... D- Diving in, and it kind of became impossible. It's interesting because one of the things which becomes very clear in the impossible project all the time is that just because a project becomes impossible and doesn't go on to sort of meet its full audience, it's still something, and it's not. It's not a waste of time. Absolutely, nothing. Nothing's wasted. So Mm -hmm. all of that kind of Mm -hmm. development and thinking goes on to inform other works Mm -hmm. after that. No doubt. Um, Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure put on put on us uh, to create a product you know to create an outcome whereas sometimes the journey itself is actually uh, what's the most rewarding part for the artist and that then leads to other other work which can be extraordinary
1: yeah absolutely but I mean, it's grown over the time that I've been working where the sort of pressure on on only making product yes. and actually even being sort of being a product right. as an artist yourself has mm-hmm. grown um, mm-hmm. yeah but that time where you're working on something which doesn't go up, it's all of what you learn yes. um, it goes on to the next project oh, and it, and the things you fail at of course inform everything yes. you know that's it's how invaluable. we learn anything
0: Yeah, it's invaluable <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to teach my kids at the moment That in fact in order to learn You must fail you, Otherwise that you didn't learn anything yeah. <laughs> If you already know how to do it Well then what did you learn? So, so failure is absolutely part and parcel Of that process and, and as artists I think we have to become More and more comfortable with that Yeah, Yeah.
1: Absolutely yeah.
0: Looking back at Venus at this uh, at this poem, I love one of the things I love about Shakespeare is that he likes to take a trope and then invert it. And so usually in the love poetry of the time that Shakespeare would have been, reading, it's the man pursuing the woman, the woman is unattainable and she doesn't want to have anything to do with him and he's, you know, oh, you're breaking my heart, you're, you're destroying me, you're ruining me. And Shakespeare flips that on its head and makes Venus the pursuer and Adonis the one who is standoffish and, and doesn't want anything to do with her. What do you think that does to our idea of love? Oh,
1: well, interestingly, there's a trope that continues on to today. Some, yes. Even today we see it flipped sometimes, but... um but more often not. Mm-hmm. Um, oh look, when we presented a staged version of the play, we had two women playing Venus mm. um, and she's such a powerful, she's such a powerful figure we needed two people. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, there were other reasons for that as well. It's kind, it's kind of raucous and she is surprisingly raucous for a female of the time mm. and even since, even more recently. Yes. Um, and that she's such a, you know, she's such a powerful figure who, you know, invokes death and you get the feeling that she's speaking directly to death. Mm, it's n- mm. not a sort of, you know, um, mm. abstract idea of it. She, she has the ability to curse love. There's also really interesting um, tropes within it. It's sort of her as a sort of female protagonist and her relationship to nature yes. within it, which mm-hmm. is, is something which Shakespeare... Um, Sort of equates the natural and the feminine quite a bit. Many people do. Where in her pursuit, at various times, she gets tangled by nature, and then she then she treads so lightly over it, she barely bends the grass, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and floats through time. So there's her sort of, you know, yeah, it's sort of a fight with herself, with herself, right?
0: Yeah. And so is that what you did with the two actors? It's Venus. It's almost like the Richard Project. Venus kind of wrestling with herself.
1: Yeah, to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, where they could they could kind of converse within themselves and try and untangle mm-hmm. um, and find devious ways ahead as well. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, and of course, of course, with the two, there's a. Um There's another level of dynamism on stage. Yes. There was was song and music involved as Mm. well, so it was quite a um, dynamic production.
0: So you didn't have any Adonis in that production? There was no no Adonis. There was no Pretty Boy? No, no, no. no. So
1: (laughs) it was um, Melissa Madden-Gray and Susan Pryor, and they had lots of fun taking the mickey out of this Adonis character.
0: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's good. Now you, now obviously Marion Potts directed that production, uh, Venus and Adonis, but you're a key artist in the room. How do you like to collaborate with a director? And often directors like to be auteurs, you know, they like to say, well, this is my production and this is the way we're doing it. How do you get in amongst that vision?
1: Um, I am very much, I mean, as an artist myself, I um, don't come in with fully formed ideas. It's not how I operate at all. Mm. I just about always kind of go in and to a conversation, and in my head it's a it's a black space. There's sure. there's there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And then in conversation with the director or other collaborators, and often that conversation is about working through the challenges um, of a particular production, as well as what the sort of textual elements, flavour of it, the kind of rhythms of it might be. Um, as that conversation progresses, a picture of it kind of starts to. Evolve in yeah. my head And it's, I find it kind of interesting If it's when the collaboration's working And And the Auteur director is actually it's, it's, It is harder yeah. Um, yeah That picture in my head Comes quite easily mm-hmm. Like it just kind of Forms right. itself yeah. And then if someone And if you're not quite Understanding what they mean Or they've Because you can't possibly see what someone else sees in their head. I mm. have to make that picture for myself. When I can't, it's you're, I'm sort of struggling, it's like it just stays black. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yep. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and then, of course, yeah. i sort of going to go away and draw it and it evolves further, yep. but it's very much about conversation and sort of arguing through things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a partnership and um, I always say that any good collaboration, you at the end, you never know whose idea was, Great, yes. You know, made yeah. it to this. Whose, whose idea was it? Yeah. They all just kind of grew upon each other mm, mm. and different people take control of different ways of producing that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you, you, it's good when you don't know where the idea came from. It yeah. just came from the
0: group. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Belle Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and my guest today, Anna Treglone. Now, Anna... Everyone has a Shakespeare origin story. Some people, it's lost in the mists of time. What's yours? Do you remember when you first came across Shakespeare?
1: I honestly don't remember the first time I came across Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I do remember the BBC series. It was on the telly as a kid. It was a a bit of a family thing to watch it. So it was probably via the television. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, I actually don't remember studying it at school. Mm -hmm. Um, I suspect I didn't. Mm. I think I'm pretty sure I'd remember. So, yeah, the beginning points are quite blurry. Mm. I know when I first became interested in you know working working with Shakespeare, um, and that was it was a few years into my um, working life definitely. And my focus up until then had been far more on new work, yes. um, sort of less traditionally plays, certainly often hybrid forms. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of happened to see a, a two versions of Hamlet. One was European house, which is sort of a prelude to Hamlet um, in the Playhouse at the Arts Centre. And then a couple of in months. Melbourne, in Melbourne. Yeah, in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, and then a couple of months later, I saw the Bell Shakespeare version of Hamlet. And I happened to uh-huh. be sitting in round about the same seat or, audi- or part of the audience yeah, right. where it was. <laughs> um and I suddenly understood it as, you know, the, what interested me anyway was that it wasn't just what I was watching on stage. Mm. Um, it was the versions that I'd seen before. And, of course, I've also seen, you know, film versions. I'm sure that I had seen another staged version yeah. you know, many years ago. Mm. But it was a, it's that. It's actually a different sort of conversation with the audience mm. where it's what they're watching on stage, but they're comparing it to their prior knowledge. Yes. You know, their school, when they read it at school. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of history that goes with mm-hmm. it that mm-hmm. then made it really interesting to me. So like that's interesting to you because
0: I would think sometimes that would be too much pressure or intimidating or you know how can I how can I do Hamlet again when it's been done seven thousand times? I mean how how do you come at designing something? Mm-hmm. That I mean, that production you're talking about, the Marion Potts one, was designed by Fiona Crombie, who then went on to become a film production designer. But how do you come at a play fresh, knowing that it's been designed a thousand times before?
1: That might be why I didn't come to it earlier yeah. <laughs> in my career, because <laughs> I think you do have to have you have to have enough tricks that you know you've got up your sleeve. Mm. Um, I look, I think all all plays or works that I do, I research quite heavily, so mm. they're they're always influenced by things outside the play text as well. So yep. I think with Shakespeare, it's worth knowing, you know, what the traditions of it are. Yep. Um, It's impossible to know every version that has gone before yeah. of it, Um, but n- nothing wrong in having a sense of it. And I kind of trust um, that because of this process of working with the director and letting it build in my head, mm-hmm. um, that... That it won't be indebted to anything, um, and if it happens to be the same as others, that's a sort of. Co- I know, I know that that's a coincidence, um, and that's okay. That's just part of the conversation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of with the like, you know, with the the big ones like Hamlet, mm-hmm. there's a bit more pressure. Maybe at the beginning, it feels a little bit more daunting. Yes. But once you're in the process,
0: yeah.
1: Um, that that dissipates for me anyway.
0: But do we have do we have enough time to Think about and design and produce. I mean, you t- you talked about uh, European House, which was a um, Catalonian uh, theatre company, Teatro Lura. They came to the Melbourne Festival. Presumably, they had years to develop this project, as many European companies do. Do we have enough time in Australia to actually develop something meaningful?
1: Mm, no, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. Right. I was the set for European <laughs> House was extraordinary no as well. No <laughs> um. Oh, look, I think unfortunately and actually having the time over the last year has been interesting because I did become aware of how we just work on these, this kind of treadmill yeah. um, and, you know, as artists you just become good at that treadmill. You just okay. kind of mm. have to kind of know that you get through. I know we work on a production for at least a year. Mm, mm. It's um, really less than that. It's a little bit less with companies and collaborators I know. Well, yep. It's often a couple of years between the ideas first Right. Um, coming up mm-hmm. and being presented. A longer process would be good. Mm. Definitely what we were talking about before, the chance to get in and develop works. Like yeah. it's, it's reasonably rare that more than a day or two days is spent with actors reading through us, mm. particularly new works. Mm. Um, the, you know, 10 years ago, developments were more common where you'd actually spend two weeks yes. just developing an idea. Mind's yep. eye was actually did quite a bit of that. Mm-hmm. Definitely there's a, it's it's poor on the stages where you can just experiment and try things out mm, and get mm. some things wrong but find surprising new things. Right, right. Yeah, so it, mm. it's, yes, I think, I mean, we do create some pretty good work in Australia oh, of <laughs> still, we've managed to, yeah, yeah. Um, but it would be interesting to be able to reach a greater level of depth. Yeah, um, which, in, which in
0: fact is what I love about us coming back to Hamlet this year because it's a rare opportunity. Hamlet went into full production, we did previews, we had opening night, we did a week of shows before it, was, it all shut down. But now we have an opportunity to revisit it uh, in a way. Mm. Um, and I, I'll, I'll talk to Peter Evans about that as a director later. But as a designer, what do you do when there's an opportunity to revisit a production?
1: i i I resist the temptation to to tinker to change everything I okay. know <laughs> <laughs> I'm far more wife clean to start okay. again yep. um, and I don't think that's a good habit, mm-hmm. so I resist that right um I oh, look I think again, I think I've just learned this over time. I've got better at letting be mm-hmm. so yeah definitely tinker if there's if there are you know things where um, it was cut short the first time or you mm. Um, There was a decision made that then wasn't utilised in the production and um, I definitely shift things and if there are things that I'm not happy with or I don't think are working, I definitely use it as Mm. an opportunity to improve upon it. Okay, good. Um, I I think theatre's so interesting because it comes of the time and place where it's made. Mm. Like you can almost tell with productions if they've been made in the Australian summer or particularly in Melbourne, the (laughs) Melbourne winter. Yeah, right. You know, (laughs) it's uh, the particular people in the room, where their life events are at, um, all of those things kind of go into build a production and there's something really precious about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I agree. Like, you know, touring, when you tour productions and they've sat for a year Mm. and you come back to them, and particularly when they've been a success like Hamlet was, you can go into it feeling you, you, on a confident footing, whereas yes. when you open open a show for the first time, it's, it's scary.
0: So after you saw that production of Hamlet back in 2008, the very next year you worked with the same director, Marion Potts, on Taming of the Shrew, which was uh, Bell Shakespeare's all-female cast version of the Shrew, how did that production go? Obviously, very radical even for for two thousand and nine, and how was it received?
1: It was it was quite a contentious production. Yep, I f- personally find it surprising that many people still see Taming of the Shrew as a love story.
0: Yeah, sure, um, sure. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. there
1: were there was um, some quite vocal people yep. who, um, I think there was even press which went, no, this is a love story.
0: It shouldn't be dark. It shouldn't yeah. be dark. Mm-hmm. Um, it,
1: mm-hmm. it shouldn't um, it shouldn't be about misogyny. So, yeah, it was contentious. Right. It was really worth doing for that mm-hmm. reason. I actually have a few friends, uh, not so much theatre people, who saw it and said I had not realised that actually it is. A, how awful. <laughs> how awful it <laughs> yes. is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's... Um, you know, it is of a, a time and place, and we don't really know Shakespeare's thinking behind it. Mm. I would hope he thought it was awful as well. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it was kind of interesting to change people's perception of the yeah. play like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember actually seeing. I think I the BBC that old, the good old BBC yes, <laughs> version yes, yeah. of it, and I she was Cleese always was the first part. Her in the first part of the play was mm. um, is is one of the great. She's one of the feistiest yes. women in Shakespeare. It's a great character. No, the arc of the story and her, you know, submission through being, you know, mm. kept captive Yeah, um, uh, is bitter.
0: Yeah, it's pretty awful. And productions that try to kind of gloss over that these days, I think, you know, they're, they're running into all sorts of problems. I just and, and,
1: don't think you can. like, oh. And it's, you know, if anything, it's a story of, you know, people do treat each other like that and they do make their sort of partners subservient. Yes, yes, control. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. The
0: following year you did a very famous production for Bell Shakespeare. You designed Twelfth Night, uh, which Lee Lewis directed and that was the production, of course, which was set in the time of bushfires and there had just been horrendous bushfires ripped through Victoria at the time, country Victoria, and in the communities where this production toured and played, it had a really, really powerful impact, I remember, on those people in those communities. How did you come up with the design? It was a massive pile of clothes. And I remember you saying, I want it bigger, more, more clothes. (laughs) Make it a bigger pile, not big enough. How did you come up with that extraordinary uh, visual, um, that that image of of the clothes?
1: Uh, It came through research, really. So, yeah, Lee... Had, had began began with the idea that it was within the bushfires and mm. she was interested in that. And then, so then I think I just started researching some of the events around those fires. Yes. And one thing which I found that's very um, common in disaster situations worldwide is that people donate clothes sure. and it's it's a generous act and it's it's a well, very well-meant mm. act. But what often happens is that they're just they're, there's more clothes than people with, and mm. you just end up with these enormous... Um, you know, rooms full of, full of secondhand clothing. Right. Mm. Um, so that image stayed with me. And then the play itself, of course, is all about sort of putting on and off disguises yeah. and who is who and how much do clothes make a person or not. So it seemed a really fitting metaphor mm. on a few levels yeah. from that. And also really satisfying because we did buy all of the, you know, we bought all of the clothes secondhand from mm. one of the charities. And then at the end of the production, because they weren't worn, really, they just sat in boxes and then went on stage and off again, they were donated back yeah. again. So it had a really nice sort of cyclical nature to it as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Then you didn't work for uh, with Bell for quite a number of years. And then we were very lucky to get you back and we worked together on that production of Julius Caesar. And I loved that design of Julius Caesar. It was so yeah you because know, because we talked about this dystopian um, vision of this society, and it, you you put it on this huge revolving truck that had scaffolding and smoke coming out of of, of pipes and all sorts of things. Talk a little bit about the the, the way we we came up with with that uh, with that concept.
1: Oh look, we went through quite a few options, didn't we? I know very early on we were interested in the. We looked at images of things broken down, mm. and sort of machinery. And I think that it did fall into place with me at the beginning of that year when travel was possible. I actually travelled to India. Yes, yes. And mm. travelling on the roads in India and seeing these sort of empty billboards mm. Mm. at the sides of the roads, and what you and I talked so much about the false promises within. Julius Caesar Mm. um, and the the sort of machinations of that system. And these billboards just really um, struck me as a layering of false promises yes. yeah. um, in that, you know, someone sometime had gone to the landowner or owner of the property and gone, <laughs> oh, look, what you need is a billboard. billboard. You'll make a fortune out of, <laughs> yeah. you know, putting advertising up there and advertising in itself, of course, is also a kind of yeah. mistruth yeah. Um, and leading people into another thing. And then, you know, the billboards sit empty and mm. they're decrepit. So yeah. coming back from that and also this the smog within India and particularly Delhi yes. as well really does give the... Um, a sense of dystopia. Yeah. So those two images sort of mm. sort of seemed to just click in with what we'd been talking about before. So then that led to mm. the sort of final design, which was the sort of billboard, which could be stripped down and yeah. moved around. I think early on you'd also spoken about having an image of um, Caesar on stage yes. or Ken on stage. sort of like
0: as a dictator, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. So mm. all of those things came together during mm. that. And then, of course, as you know, in um, Twelfth Night, it's the same, the challenges um for the set on those tours yeah and and that 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 is
0: always a big challenge isn't it i mean it'd be great if you were just in you know if you're doing the harry potter show you just put it in one theater and then you 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 don't move but what what are the conversations that you have to have with with the production team who is all about the logistics and getting it in and doing a four-hour bump in what are the compromises you need to make
1: well, yeah, many. <laughs> yeah. Many, although, so that was the th- third of those tours which I'd done. Yes. Um, and again, so sort of learning as it goes. I think with that type of production, you just have to start with that. You can't bring it in as an afterthought. It's, yeah. If a show has gone up in um, a theatre and isn't expected to tour and then becomes a touring production, there's an awful lot and it's quite hard mm. to rethink and reimagine what it will be. Yeah. Um, but because it is... Known from the outset, you kind of just need to work within those parameters. Right. And when I design for tours, I design in several of the theatres simultaneously, test it mm-hmm. in several of the theatres simultaneously. So, yeah, but there's a, there is a whole stack of things like, you know, there's one or two theatres that have only got small loading doors. Yeah, so you've sure. got this size yeah. limitation, mm-hmm. um, the bump in and out. Um, for the crew is is fast and furious, mm. and it's really hard work. So you want to be considerate to yeah, yeah. the crew and not sort of overstretch of course. them as well. Yeah, um, yeah, and also something which I've really learnt with Lee, I think, is that it because the cast and crew do become a family. Mm. The sort of importance of keeping it fun within that as well, like having enough variation and things that the cast can continue to play with. So that was the other sort of Mm. joy in the mound of clothes because in the Mm -hmm. rehearsal room, you know, they just kept on inventing things with those clothes. (laughs) We found many of the costumes in that pile, in fact. Mm. Um, And the invitation was there for them to be able to continue to play with, you know, not not big changes, of course, um, because unexpected can throw everyone, but certainly to keep playing Mm-hmm. Um, with what the items are and I think generally I like that in theatre anyway it is a live form so yeah um yeah. kind of sets that can continue to be explored yes. and there's different levels of subtlety that can be found in them yeah um mm-hmm. I sort of find interesting and I find it interesting to imagine what actors might find yeah in yeah. a set so
0: Anna, it's been so great talking to you today. Just before we go, we've got this segment, the final five. I've got five quick questions. I need five quick answers. Here we go, number one. In Shakespeare, Anna, do you prefer the lovers, the villains or the fools?
1: I'm going to have to say the villains.
0: Okay. (laughs) I think most people say the villains. (laughs) Yeah, the villains are delicious in Shakespeare. Anna, what's your most underrated Shakespeare play?
1: I am a fan of the much maligned Titus Andronicus. Wow, okay, yeah. yes. Yep. Yes. Um, I've seen three versions of it mm-hmm. and each one was just creatively so different, like mm-hmm. it is a, a problematic um, yeah. text and it's vicious and ugly and despicable in many ways, mm. but there is something about it that sort of forces artists into a really creative experimental yeah. space mm-hmm. and the productions of it are always surprising. Um, so I'd say that's, that, I think that would have to be my Okay,
0: pick. Titus, yeah. number one. Anna, who's your favourite artist you'd love to work with who you haven't worked with yet? Who's on your list?
1: I've never worked with Kate Mulvaney and I think oh, she's right. kind hey, of, yeah. you know, okay. she's a many-faceted faceted and um, wonderful person. Yes. Yeah, mm. yeah, I'd like to work with that her. I think progress. there's too many and too... <laughs> Too few. There, of are, there, there are, are many, many people. Of course there um, are.
0: Anna, yeah. which Shakespeare play is on your bucket list as a designer? Apart from Titus, that's underrated <laughs> for you, but as as a bucket list, uh, w- what's the play you want to design next?
1: Oh, interestingly, probably Macbeth.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, good. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that on the list. <laughs> it's, it's, it's got a good
1: villain. Yeah.
0: And Anna, if you weren't an artist, what would you be doing?
1: I'd love to be an inventor. Oh. Yeah, I love the idea. I love people who invent things. Mm. I was reading Mm. this morning that they've invented the whitest white paint.
0: The whitest white paint. The whitest white paint, (laughs) which
1: will reduce, because it reflects so much light, it actually reduces the heat within buildings by three or four degrees. So it's it's not only... Oh, you probably need sunglasses to wear wear around (laughs) it. Um, So, no, I do have a lot of respect for inventors, and I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, That or... A diplomat, but I don't know if I'd be
0: any good at that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Inventor <laughs> or diplomat, I'm sure you could do either. Anna, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Oh, absolutely.
1: An absolute pleasure to talk with you, James. Thank you for having me.
0: Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.